Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well today. On this episode we're going to be talking about three books from Brian Bagnall. These are his Commodore books. I think he is going to be writing a fourth one, or at least I've heard that he's going to be writing a fourth one, I'm not really sure. But what these three books do is they cover the history of Commodore computers from 1978-ish up until the company kind of closed its doors in the mid-90s. Commodore Computers, they're, they're a very interesting company. I didn't know too much about them until the, really until the internet, until I started paying attention to the internet, really. So probably like 2015, 2014, 2015. It's, a, it's just a period of history that I never really paid any attention to. We didn't have a Commodore computer growing up. We actually didn't have a computer until the early 90s. And, yeah, I just never knew that Commodore existed. So having these three books was kind of cool. It, it was just something fun to kind of read through and learn more about a company that I didn't know too much about and learn more about a bunch of products that I didn't know about. Now, before we get into this... Uh, <laughs> There is one more book from Commodore, or at least about Commodore, that I'm not going to be touching on here because I, I've only like recently finished reading it, haven't had a chance to really write down any of my thoughts on it. And that is Bill Hurd's kind of biography, or sort of biography that he wrote. It doesn't cover everything. It basically is his year, it's basically his years at Commodore where he worked on the Plus 4 and the Commodore 128. It's a very good story. I really like how Bill talks about it. I just haven't quite gathered everything together to go over it from his side of the story. One of the books that uh, Brian wrote, it does go over some of what Bill said. It's, in some cases, it goes a little bit more in-depth, provides a... A different perspective on it and that sort of thing but it doesn't it doesn't have the same I guess like authenticity or the same angle that Bill's book has I feel like Bill's probably not quite as honest I think he kind of spins it a little bit more in in his favor and he doesn't know everything that everyone else knew at the time so he can talk about what he was there for what he knew but with uh, Brian's research and the interviews that Brian conducted, he can kind of present a more full picture, or at least a, a picture that he kind of gets across what he wanted to get across. So that's uh, Bill Hurd's book, <laughs> and I'll get more into that at, uh, at a later time. I'm not sure if I'll be talking about it here, or I'll just write an article or and then uh, do, a, do a review of it for YouTube. Um... It probably isn't enough to be its own its own ep episode on here. Uh, we'll see what happens, but I, I don't think I'll... At this moment, I don't think I'll be doing anything with it. Now, getting back to uh, Brian's books, uh, I don't think there needed to be three of them, at least in my opinion. Uh, for the most part, book one kind of covers everything. It sort of goes in depth into the early years when Jack Trammell was there, and he was you know going back and forth with Chuck Peddle, and then 
after the uh, Commodore 64, it sort of tapers off a bit. It just kind of gives some more like broad strokes. It doesn't go in depth with a lot of things. There's still a lot in it, but for the most part, he's kind of just getting to the end. And so like the first book is really great. The second book goes more into the Amiga stuff because that's, you know, it's titled The Amiga Years, so I would hope you would get more <laughs> into the Amiga at that point. But he kind of covers a lot of the same ground that was already covered in the first book. So you get a lot of the same stories and that sort of thing. And that one also goes all the way up to the closure of, of Commodore. So you have two books that basically tell the same story. One goes a little bit more in depth on a certain section of it. And they both end in the same spot. So I'm not sure why they both needed to be that that way. I feel like he could have just made this like two books or something along those lines. Because each of these books is it's a couple hundred pages like they're long books and I just sort of felt like it kind of got away from him for a little bit there and then you get to the the third book the final years and I feel like that one deserved to be its own like standalone book because he goes pretty in depth into what what was going on there you get a lot of the same stories though you still get stuff that was presented to you in the first two books but then it gets expanded on in the final years where he kind of goes more into just what was going on talks about just the, the constant management issues that were going on at Commodore the upheaval and everything like that and you know, I'll talk more about that when I get to that book but it's just it's a lot of him repeating himself again but giving more details. I feel like if he could have done this, I would have... Okay, if I was going to write these books, let me phrase it that way. If I was going to write these books, I would have just gone, you know, Commodore from 77 to 84 and then, you know, included the Amiga into that part. So you just go from 77 up to, like, so maybe a little bit farther, like 86 up until when, like, Thomas Radigan left. And then the next book would be the final years that would cover everything post-Radigan up until the company closing down. And you don't have any overlap between the two of them. That way, you have two books that are both standalone. You don't necessarily have to read both of them. But if you wanted to grab, like, a specific set of, specific set of events, you could go to one of these two books. And I feel like that would have been a lot better. Instead, now you've got a lot of overlap in these three books, which kind of makes it kind of makes me wonder why he did three. Like, did he have to do three books, or did he just you know start going on one and then decide to go more in depth on a story on the second one, and then in the third one? deciding he wanted to go more in depth on another part of it but still giving you all the backstory and all the other stuff that was in the previous book it just feels weird to me and i probably rambled on too long about this so let's get into the into the first book which is on the edge 
So according to my, my very brilliant notes here, which are, are definitely typed up this time and not written out on a piece of paper so I can actually read them, uh, this book, On the Edge, focuses mainly on Commodore's history from 1977 to 1984. It's, again, as I mentioned, it goes over everything, but it only briefly touches on the Amiga and then the last years of Commodore. Now, there's a lot of quotes from the engineer, engineers who worked at Commodore here. It shows, like, it shows how much information was gathered in this book, because it's, it's a very dense read. Like, there's a lot going on here. It didn't feel like it was just, you know, it didn't feel like you were just being bludgeoned with facts over and over again. It was pretty compelling to read a lot of this stuff. And, you know, it, it was really great. I got a little confused at the beginning because we, we started talking about a, a guy named Chuck Peddle, and I really didn't know who the hell he was. But he was kind of the person who started Commodore's engineering department. Or not engineering department, but kind of started their computer department, let me put it that way. So for a person that I didn't know anything about, Chuck Peddle is an incredibly interesting person. He doesn't really seem like the kind of person I would want to hang out with, just based on some of the comments he made in here, but that's besides the fact. I could definitely see myself sitting down and talking to him once in a while, but probably not hanging out with him too much. We just seem to have kind of contrasting ideas about certain things. But whatever, that that's pretty irrelevant to what's going on here. So he was in charge of several projects, and one of them was the pet computer. It wasn't the only thing he did. He he did a lot, like, you know, set up a pipeline for them to get other engineers in, create kind of like an R&D place. He created sort of like an atmosphere so that the other engineers could get together, come up with new ideas, and kind of just test stuff out to see if it would work. It sounds like they came up with a lot of really cool stuff back then that ended up kind of getting scrapped because, you know, Jack Trammell was their boss, and whenever Jack Trammell felt like it, he would just sort of change his mind and make random decisions without ever actually, you know, talking to anybody. And he kind of comes across a bit like an asshole. At least that's my reading of it. I shouldn't really go that far. He he comes across as somebody who did a lot of short-term planning and did a lot of, you know, just steamrolling of anybody that was there. And he never really seemed to kind of see eye-to-eye with what Chuck Peddle was trying to do. Either he didn't understand it or he didn't like the fact that he wasn't in charge of it. It's kind of weird when you think about it. Because you hire this guy to run your engineering department. You give him all this freedom initially. You make promises to him. He has some success with the pet. I'd, I'd have to go and look up the numbers and everything. Because you know, they do the same thing here that it kind of annoys me. Where they're like, it was hugely successful. And I'm like, great. What does is, what is hugely successful mean in 1977? And what does that mean now in like 2022? Uh, but it, it's it's just kind of one of those weird things that I have a problem with. I'm getting sidetracked again, I'm sorry. It just kind of seems like 
Chuck Peddle and uh, Jack Trammell were kind of like oil and water. They weren't going to cut. They weren't going to really mesh together very well. So, yeah, as this is kind of the start of what would become a reoccurring thing. Ja- uh, Chuck Peddle came in, had a, had a lot of success with his computer. They tried to come up with like a follow up to it, but they weren't. Re- the team wasn't rewarded for the work that they had done by Jack Tremell because Tremell kind of gave them this like poison pill deal essentially, where they would either get paid like their regular salary or they could not get paid now and get paid later. Like uh, I think it we'll just say like a dollar for every pet computer that was released or something like that. And that's how they would get paid afterwards. And it sounds like a really great deal. But you have to remember for the eight months that you're creating this computer, you're not making any money. And that's not really a deal that a lot of people can afford to do. They can't really go, you know, eight months with no income and then just, you know wait and wait and hope that this computer is successful so yeah like that was kind of one of the many ways that engineers would get screwed here so you had the people make the pet they kind of get they don't really get the recognition that they believe they should get they don't get rewarded in the way they should and they kind of leave and then the next group makes the vic 20 same thing happens again that group leaves and then, you know, the Commodore 64 comes, same thing happens, that team leaves. The, that's kind of the pattern that gets laid out here. And that sort of drove a wedge between Pedal and uh, Jack Trammell, caused Pedal to leave, come back for a little bit, then leave again, and Trammell to kind of just disassemble everything that Pedal had created and move on in a different direction. From reading this, it just kind of sounded like, you know, Jack Trammell was focused on, like, the short-term gains, and he wasn't really looking in the long term. I could be completely off on this, but that was just the way it it read to me. I, I, yeah, it kind of leads to one of the faults in this, in this book. We don't get, like, at least I don't feel we got the full story of everything that was going on which is kind of understandable it was you know it was in the 70s like we a lot of those people probably don't remember um some of them might not be alive anymore that kind of thing it's it's kind of one of those weird situations where you you're not going to get the full story and that's the way it is with commodore you're not going to get the full story of the company anymore you're going to get what people remember and you just sort of have to go off of that and then corroborate it with whatever you can find. It's a bit of a problem when you put together something like this, but I think overall Brian did a really good job with it. I mean, when we, we look at the uh, the pet and the VIC-20, we can kind of see how, how that management style of, of just sticking with the short term, it kind of affected the company. And it would set the stage for what was going to happen with the Commodore 64. There was just a lot of a lot of uh, oh gosh, sorry. There was a lot of like short-term stuff going on. They 
they would screw over the engineers that made a computer. Those engineers would leave. Then they wouldn't build on the success of those computers. And they would just let whatever was there, like any of that momentum, carry them as long as it was going to carry them until their next big thing hit. It was kind of like a a boomer bust cycle that they had going. So after each, basically after each uh, computer was released and it would do whatever it was going to do, the first few were were pretty successful. Uh, Then they would have kind of a brain drain and those engineers would leave and they would have to get a new set in and that new set probably didn't know what the previous set was doing or what they had done. So they had to either reinvent the wheel or they had to kind of guess on how to build off of it. But yeah, that it was just it was a little sad reading that because you see just this massive success. You see the people who brought that success to the company kind of get screwed over and the company just sort of moves on. You know, maybe it made me feel pretty bad for some of the engineers there. And then you hear about a lot of the other projects that were going on that were, you know, almost completed, and then Jack Tramell would change his mind and those projects would get scrapped. And this would come up even after Tramell left, but I think what Tramell did was, and this is just me guessing here because it's not really said in the book, but he would look at those projects and say, well, those aren't, I don't see the benefit of those now. So let's scrap that project now and not waste any more development time on it and move on to something that we either know is going to be successful or sounds like it'll be successful. Which isn't a bad thing. I mean, you might end up losing out on something that's going to be great, but it's not the worst thing in the world to do. Later on in Commodore, when we get into the final years, that does like a total 180 where it's just, we'll just keep plugging away at this project until it becomes obsolete and then we'll kill it. So we'll work on this project for like four years and then when it's obsolete, we'll wonder why we spent four years working on it. It's, it is kind of that, that two edged sword here. If you cut a project off early, that's going to be a success. You'll kind of miss out on it. But if you let it keep going to the point where you're just constantly making new and new iterations of the same thing without it ever getting out, then you lose whatever success that project could have been. So as this book moves on, we get to the Commodore 64, and that was just a massive success as far as computers went. And it sort of fell into a sweet spot where the home consoles for video games had fallen off, Commodore was still making software at this time, so they could support their new computer on their own. You also had other companies that wanted to make software for it, and they came in, and I think, I don't know if there's like a complete list out there, but the the highest number that I've heard is 10,000 like pieces of software for this computer, whether that's games or whether that's other types of software. That is just a ridiculously huge library. Just assuming that not all of them are games, we'll say that there are at least like 5,000 games for this system. Back in the 80s, that, that would be ridiculous. Like, even when you got into the 90s, like, the, the most complete list I know for the PS1 is, a, is about 2,500 games, and I might be off on that. 
the PS2 at about 3,000, and you have like the NES that had um, that had about 790, I think, not including the unlicensed games. So it might it's probably over 800. And then you had stuff where I'm I'm getting sidetracked again. It just had a huge library of games. Let's just say that the Commodore 64 had a huge library of games. And the worst part about it, having that huge library, the worst thing was that Commodore didn't give a shit about backwards compatibility. So when they came out with the Plus 4 right after the Commodore 64, none of those programs could work on the Plus 4. Now part of this was because the Plus 4 wasn't supposed to be a game machine, it was supposed to be a business computer, but, you know, if anything is... If the computer industry so far, like from what I've learned of 80s computers, uh, just because you market a computer one way doesn't mean that's the way the public's going to use it. You can look at that with a lot of the Apple computers. They were marketed as educational computers. That doesn't mean everybody used them for educational purposes. And that's sort of what happened with like the Plus 4. Just because it was marketed as a business computer doesn't mean it was used that way. And you had a lot of like software companies that made Commodore 64 stuff. Uh, Bill Hurd talks about this in his book where he made the Plus 4. He went to a consumer electronics show with it. And this lady who makes software showed him all the new software that she had made and said, none of this works on your computer because it's not compatible with the Commodore 64. And that was a that was a pretty big problem for Commodore and honestly a lot of computers back then. Their software wasn't compatible with each other. I guess that works if you wanna if you wanna make it so, you know, you have some exclusive stuff on your computer. But it it's just kind of annoying. And it's sort of weird for me because, you know, in the nineties at least in my world, everything was PC or Mac. So you have these two bits of software. One is compatible with Mac, one is compatible with PC. And we were a PC family. So compatibility really didn't matter too much for me. It's it's one of those weird things that I, I don't quite understand with the computer market. Uh, I get that there are different companies back in the 80s. They wanted to protect what they had. Uh, you had Atari with a lot of really stupid ideas on how to protect their software industry. And, yeah, like, it, it's... Computers are very weird. So the last thing that I really want to talk about with this is... um Is, one, how... Commodore basically wasted all the money that they got from the Commodore 64. Like, they had a, a huge influx of cash, and they just absolutely wasted it anywhere that they could probably think of. Like, short of actually putting all of this money into a pile in their parking lot and setting it ablaze, they pretty much did it. Uh, they just... They kind of uh, hired a whole bunch of people that probably shouldn't have been there, they just started trying to build everything all at once. They overspent for the Amiga chipset and then proceeded to piss off all the Amiga engineers so that those guys left. It's really kind of a crazy thing that they did, and it's ugh, just really annoying. 
They also fired Jack Trammell, <laughs> or he was forced out of the company. And when he left, he kind of he bought Atari and started a blood feud with with Commodore. So you have these two companies, which both are kind of going to end up going the way of the Dodo for the most part. But they're just fighting it out for what's essentially third place. And I know that's probably going to make some people upset, but that's sort of the way it was. And they just kept going after each other. And it didn't end well for either company. But it, I don't know a whole lot about Atari's computer computers, but they had to have been run better than Commodore was because that place was just an absolute dumpster fire. So they ended up overspending for the Amiga. They never built like a real successor to the Commodore 64. They came out with the Commodore 128, but that did not really get people to shift from the 64 to it. And yeah, like it, when you read the next two books, like the Amiga years and uh, the final years, they're constantly talking about building a true Commodore 64 successor. And the company just never does it. And they spend, like, a ridiculous amount of time and just hundreds of man-hours, a whole bunch of money, building prototypes for this computer that they are never going to build. And, yeah, it's just really strange watching it all happen. So I got off track there. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I did not mean to kind of do that. I... I don't know. I guess I got a little fired up while I was talking about this. So let's let's move on from uh, On the Edge, and we'll go to the Amiga years. Uh, this book, obviously, oh my gosh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I can speak English, I swear. I, I can do this. <laughs> so the book focuses on like a five to six year period when the Amiga chipset was being made and when Commodore tried to acquire was trying to acquire it. And it sort of goes over the battle between Atari and Commodore for getting this chipset. For the most part, this is going to cover the period from you know, 1982 to 1987. So there's a little bit of overlap with On the Edge. And also they go into like the Commodore 128, which I understand why they do it, because it, it took place during this period, its development was going on during this time, but the two stories aren't really connected. Like they don't, there's not a lot of, not a lot of like uh, stuff going on between them. Bill Hurd and his like, his 128 animals or whatever the heck they were actually called, they, like that engineering group, didn't really have a lot of connection with the Amiga group. They did talk. I remember them going out there, talking with each other, seeing what each other was working on, that sort of thing. But it just, it felt a little bit disconnected from what was being talked about, or at least what the title of the book was, what I thought the subject of the book was going to be. It just felt a little weird to me. I feel like this book could have been a lot shorter, but that was, you know, that was just me. That was if I wrote it, and it probably wouldn't be a very good book if I wrote it, to be perfectly honest. Out of this entire book, the, the story that I found the most fascinating was the sale of the Amiga chipset. It was just really cool to hear about. You know, you hear about how they started, how the Amiga team, they started off 
wanting to make a video game console. And then slowly it turned into, let's build a computer. And they're just constantly looking for money. They're constantly, you know, working on this chipset, making it better, making it as good as it possibly could be, and really pushing the boundaries. Like, this chipset was super advanced for the time. It was a really great computer. And then it gets sold to Commodore. It gets finished at Commodore. At least I think it gets finished. And Commodore just proceeds to fuck it all up. Just constantly screwing this thing up. Uh, they they constantly like wouldn't market this very well. They would just mess everything up, and they ended up pissing off the the uh, the people who made the Commodore, and kind of forcing them all to leave, in one way or another. That was after they spent like over twenty million dollars to buy the entire company, which they didn't really need. They didn't need to buy the entire company. They were trying, uh, the Amiga team was trying to sell the chipset for right or, I think it was right around like $4 million. And that would have been easier for Commodore. They could have bought the chipset, stuck it into a computer, called it a day. But this was stupid Commodore. After Tremel had left, Tremel was trying to buy the Amiga chipset as well. And... Tremel was doing what he did best, and that's, you know, force the deal to be as good as he could possibly get it for himself, and put a lot of poison pills in that that contract to sort of force the team into kind of giving him the company for peanuts, essentially. And instead, they, the Amiga team went to Commodore. Commodore said, well, we'll buy the whole company. And, you know, uh, 20 some odd million looks a whole hell of a lot better than 4 million so that's what the Amiga team did and Commodore got Amiga lock stock and barrel and proceeded to squander every single bit of potential that that chipset had okay so I see it in my notes here uh, Comm- they wanted to sell the chipset for 5 million uh, but instead Commodore wanted to uh, decided they were going to buy the entire company for 24 million so yeah, it's a <laughs> it's still kind of a stupid decision, especially in hindsight when you you see like what little they actually did with this and how badly they would proceed to just screw everything up. Okay, so the the next thing after after the Amiga stuff is all kind of wrapped up, then we start talking about the Commodore 128 and how that was trying to build off the success of the Commodore 64. And we kind of also talk a little bit about how Bill Hurd Bill Hurd made the plus four, essentially, how it wasn't a success because Commodore screwed it all up for a variety of reasons that just, you know, that was kind of what Commodore did. They screwed stuff up, especially after the Commodore 64. And then... Bill Hurd wanted to kind of rectify some of the problems with the 128. So he wanted to make the 128 have some degree of backward compatibility. And this is where another issue with Commodore comes in. Where nobody talked to each other. Nobody was on the same goddamn page at Commodore. So the marketing team said 100% compatibility. 
so all of a sudden the Commodore 128 needed 100% compatibility. The Mar- then you had Bill Hurd's boss say, we're going to nix the, uh, the expandability to 256 or 216 kilobytes. So Bill Hurd nixes the, compat- the expandability, and then they go to the CES, and there are all these advertisements about how the, 120, the Commodore 128 is going to be expandable to, to, to 516 kilobytes of memory. And then they have to put it back in. So they had to find a way to get it back in there. After, you know, I think it was the president or the CEO of Commodore asked where the expandability was, and Bill Hurd's boss was like, oh, it's in the back. Yeah, it's it's just it's on the back of the thing somewhere. They'll they'll, they'll put it in. It's yeah, just constant weird shits going on at Commodore. It was a it's a very interesting company. You hear all of these different stories in this one about, especially from Bill Hurd talking about how the middle ma- the middle managers were just absolutely useless. Uh, you get some stories of the QA department trying to get uh, Bill fired. He expands on those stories in, in his own um, in his autobiography. It's kind of funny to read about some of this stuff, and it's really surprising that these guys got anything done, especially with you know the management team being at odds with the engineering team, the marketing people being at odds with with the engineers. No one really talking about what they're doing. There seem to be like little to no planning going on. A lot of tribalism, or there there was a lot of you know not invented here going on. So if somebody had a good idea, and it didn't come from the right group of people, they didn't want it. So it, it's kind of just I've worked in an environment like that, and it's not very good. It, it's kind of kind of shitty. But yeah, it's stuff like that is. Oh man, I felt so bad for for Bill Hurd, Dave Haney, a lot of the other people that are mentioned in this, where it just kind of seemed like, you know, they're trying to put out products that they know are good, but, like, the management doesn't want them. It was around this time that I started thinking, you know, Commodore really has, like, a self-sabotage fetish. Like, somebody in there was just like, we need to make sure we fail, otherwise, you know, nothing is going to be right with the universe. It was really weird reading through this book and going, wow, like this, this is just an awful company and I'm surprised they've made it this long. So you, you got those two stories. Um, then we get the one that I think kind of puts a capstone on this book. And that is Thomas Radigan coming in, trying to save the company and doing his damnedest to kind of fix the damage that had come in the post-Jack Trammell year. Uh, you know, he... So they hired this other guy who came in, just burned through all the cash that they had, got Commodore into such a deep hole that they were probably never going to come out of it under that, that circumstance, or at least it looked like they weren't going to come out of it. And then Thomas Radigan comes in and kind of starts fixing everything and the problem was he started getting popular and people started liking him and that pissed off the person who owned Commodore or at least was a majority shareholder in Irving Gold uh, Gould 
and because Gould wasn't getting the credit that he thought he deserved for the success of the company that he had no part of, he decided he decided to get rid of Radigan. So he gets rid of Radigan and appoints himself CEO, and that just kind of hammers a few nails into the coffin of Commodore. Oh my God, there, there was one story I completely forgot about. Um, and I should have put this in my notes here, but I, I just completely forgot about it, and now now I remember it. So, so this one is out of order. Um, this is the story of their LCD computer. So Commodore is creating this, uh, this like portable LCD, almost like a laptop or like a proto laptop. And they were at the CES show where this, this LCD computer was like a third of their booth. I think this was the same, uh, same, uh, CES where they were trying to show off or they showed off the, uh, Commodore 128. So this would have been like winter of 85. They show this thing off. And it's a big chunk of their booth and everything like that. It's, according to everything that that I've read, it was a really good computer. It had a better case than everybody else. It had, like, more capabilities than every other computer that was, like, a portable at the time. It was going to be huge, according to the Commodore stories that I've heard. And they canceled it. (laughs) Because the president of Tandy, which was Radio Shack's computer company, and a competitor to Commodore, told the the then CEO that nobody wanted uh, LCD computers and they don't sell well. So a competitor tells tells the head of Commodore, "Hey, don't sell that. It's not going to work." And the and the CEO of Commodore, because he he was an idiot, decided to scrap the project. For some godforsaken reason, like, like because th- this would be like if if the president of Burger King walked up to the president of McDonald's and said, "Oh, no, you need to not sell that that Big Mac. That's a terrible idea. Don't do that." And McDonald's didn't sell their Big Mac anymore because Burger King told them not to. <laughs> it's just it's one of those weird stories about Commodore where you you don't think it's real. But it is, and it's just hilarious. Uh, This one, oh gosh, this started this weird thing where um, uh, Bill Hurd mentions it, where he put up this uh, this article that was like, you know, Tandy's computer is like one of the best-selling computers, like their LCD computer, which was a piece of shit. It, It was selling great, like it was saving their business for that quarter or something like that, and. Bill put underneath it, you know, never take advice from your enemy or never take advice from your competitor or something like that. It's just a funny story, and it talks about just the rampant incompetence that was going on at at, um, at Commodore at the time, and it kind of explains why they were in such a big hole for when Thomas Radigan came in, and just you know the stuff that he had to deal with to try to get the company back in into like a workable state where they could actually compete because they were just going they had too many projects going on projects that were never going to get completed like stuff that oh gosh there's another now there's another saying that i had heard where it was like we would spend a year working on this just so just so it could get canceled 
that was kind of Commodore for a while. <laughs> in between Tremel and uh, and Radigan, you they would have some successes in spite of what they were doing. And if anything was ever produced, it kind of seemed like a happy accident. Then Radigan came in and just canceled a whole bunch of projects that weren't going anywhere. Just stuck with like the Commodore 64 computers, the PC clones that they were making, and then the Amiga computers. Got them set up for success, and then Irving Gould decided, well... I'm not responsible for the success, so I need to fire the people that are getting us where we need to go so I can take over and I can, you know, get all the credit for none of the work that I've done. <laughs> it's just, uh, God, Commodore's a weird company. <laughs> anyway, that, this is the book that I think, you know, if he had uh, combined the Amiga years with uh, On the Edge, I think things would have been a little bit better. At least that's the way I, I think about it now as I'm looking back at it. Uh, anyway, let's let's move on to the third and final book, uh, The Final Years by Brian Bagnell. So The, the Final Years, the, this is the book that I, I probably have the most issue with just because we've heard a lot of these stories before because they were in the other two books. There are a few things in here that get expanded on but for the most part, you're kind of hearing the same goddamn stories over and over again. It, it, it did have some stuff in it that I thought was really interesting. Uh, but for the most part, I was kind of like, okay, great. I, I knew how this was going to end after the first book. Kind of got told it again after the second one. And the third, you're just kind of giving me a little bit more about why they already died that you than what you've told me in the previous two books. I think I think one of one or two of the stories in here are probably the the most interesting out of them. We do get a little bit more about like the end days of Commodore. But yeah, it it was just it was kind of strange hearing the same stuff again and, and this was the one where I I was doing more skimming in this book than I was reading because I was kind of like, okay, yeah, I've heard this story. I don't, I don't think you're going to add anything new to it. It's, it's kind of, you know, just you repeating yourself. It felt like this book was a little bit more padded out than the other ones were to, to put it in an easier way. So the final years covers, um, covers the years from 1987 to 1994 uh, in 1994, Commodore got liquidated by Irving Gould after he had basically run the company into the ground and, you know, picked at the carcass as much as he was going to. I will say this, like, both Ali, uh, Al, or sorry, Medi Ali and Irving Gould, they were getting, like, million-dollar salaries all the way up until Commodore closed its doors. So they were just... They were just constantly milking this company. At least that's the way it seemed to me. And that is one of the faults in this. We don't get anything... We don't get Irving Gould's side of the story. We don't get Mediali's side of the story. And part of that is, you know, with Irving Gould passing away in 2004, I'm pretty sure he wasn't around when, when Brian was collecting all the information. 
And he was also just sort of notoriously camera shy, which is weird for a person who wanted all of the attention, wanted all the accolades for the success of Commodore. And then, you know, when it was failing, he was just gone. He didn't want to be around because, you know, the company wasn't doing well. So why would he want to talk to anyone? He he's kind of a mystery. He's a very mysterious character. And then you have Mediali, who was brought in and like that snake in the grass kind of convinced Irvin Gold that he could do this. I don't know why. I don't know what happened between Irvin Gold and and Medi Ali where Ali was able to convince him that you know he was the right guy to save Commodore when there was no evidence of this whatsoever. The guy just kind of came in and convinced them to make a whole bunch of cuts to the engineering department and a whole bunch of cuts to everything else and they just this is when they weren't producing any real products that anybody wanted and the stuff they were putting out was was okay but it wasn't the same like you know it wasn't pushing boundaries like with the Amiga 500 the Amiga 1000 it wasn't you know this massive gaming machine that could go anywhere and was very cheap like the Commodore 64 they just sort of lost what they they should have been doing this whole time where they should have been constantly putting out like these low cost computers that everybody could get and you know anyone could use they instead decided to put out like these bigger things they they wanted to compete with all of the big boys on a lot of these other projects and they ended up failing spectacularly in every single area that they tried to go into and they just sort of ignored all the success they had with the Commodore 64. There was this one part where I remember in the books they were talking they were talking to like this consulting business and the consulting people said, "Well, this is what you have, so you don't need to worry about that." And that's exactly what they did. They didn't worry about the section of the market that they had. They tried to expand into other markets that they had no business expanding into. And then they ignored everything they had before, so they didn't maintain the market share they had. They let that continuously slip to the point where they were just nowhere, they had no presence in the U.S., and it was all overseas. And they alienated all of the people that would have sold their computers, and just nothing worked out for them, at least in the U.S. And, yeah, (laughs) just nothing was going right for them. They moved into just, like, some weird stuff in the final years. They tried to make the Commodore 65, which was supposed to be, like, a, like an... Uh, excuse me. It was supposed to be an NES killer. And that thing just sort of languished in in development for years. Like, the, the development started in, like, the, the late 80s. I think, like, 87 or 88. And it wasn't canceled until, like, the early 90s, after all the 16-bit systems came out. And they basically spent, like, four or five years developing this system, only for it to never be released. And, yeah, them just kind of moving on. But they did put out the CDTV, which was stupid. And they had no idea how to market it, and it didn't have any software. And it just was kind of like a gadget that 
they were they were like, see, we built this, and people were like, yeah, but like, what is it, and how are we supposed to use it? And they would just kind of say, well, we made it. Yeah, great. <laughs> and then they put out the uh, the CD32, and that thing, say what you want about it, it wasn't it wasn't going to get them anywhere at that point. It was released too late in Commodore's life. It didn't really have a whole lot of games on it. People really didn't know about it. It couldn't get back into the U.S. market. And, yeah, it just kind of died. So, what are my final thoughts on these three books? Uh... I have to say, like, while I was reading this at times, it kind of felt like it it just wasn't real. Like, I I was reading some kind of a fiction story or something with just how people could... how, how people could see things and just decide that they didn't want a project to succeed. Or how they... how they didn't come up with it and therefore they didn't think that it should exist it yeah it it was really weird I uh yeah it it felt a lot like at least one of the jobs that I had where you have people who come up with good ideas and they try to kind of fight against management to get those good ideas out and it seems almost like like I said earlier like there's just this self-sabotage fetish that is going on where the managers want the company to fail and the workers are trying to get it to succeed but everything just everything just kind of seems to be working against the success of the company I think one of the things that I, I really wanted to see out of this that isn't going to be possible for a variety of reasons uh, was to get kind of more of the sides of the story I think Brian did a great job of researching this of coming up with everything that he had he put it together for the most part nicely I think it probably could have just been two books instead of three but you know overall I think he he got a lot in here that is really interesting and I think he did the history of uh, Commodore a pretty good service here it's nice to have all this stuff and well, in three places, but if you own all three of the books, then it's all in one place. There are two things that really stood out to me, and that was how Commodore never really never really built off the success of the Commodore 64. They had this really great computer that was very successful, but they never they never did anything with it. They never, you know, built a real successor to the Commodore 64. They had the 128, and that one was probably pretty good. It, you know, it could do, you know, for the most part, backwards compatibility with the Commodore 64, and then it had its own line of stuff. But it, for whatever reason, wasn't, just wasn't successful. Uh, They talk about the uh, Commodore 256 in here, which was going to be, another one of those computers that was supposed to build off the success of the of the Commodore 64 to kind of keep that line going and keep working on their uh, their 8-bit computers and whatnot 
but it got canceled for, uh, again, a variety of reasons. I don't know if it was really needed at that point, since they were really going all in on the Amiga, but they they could have still kept those, I guess, like ultra low-budget computers, or actually had a real low-budget computer, because they really didn't have one, at least not on the same level as the Commodore 64. Uh, I should point out, like, I think the Commodore 64 was, like, under 300 and they constantly did price drops on it. So you got a home computer for very cheap. These were supposed to fight off, like, the the Sinclair computers that were coming over. So, like, the, uh, I think it was Timex was, they were the company that was bringing them over here. But the Commodore 64 kind of killed off that that computer. And so they had this hugely successful computer with the Commodore 64 and never built off the success of that, as I mentioned. Uh, the second thing was that they just squandered the Amiga. They did not really do much with it. They put the chipset into a lot of things. They tried to build a lot of stuff with that you know, technology, but you know, they just never really did too much with it. They put out a lot of computers, but they, they at the same time, they didn't really capitalize on it. They didn't market them very well. They caused repeated brain drains in their engineers, especially with the Amiga engineers. Like, they just, I don't know what it was, but they they did not trust each other. That that led back to some of the, the weird factions that formed in, in Commodore, where you would have the QA department wanting to kill a project, or you'd have a another department that didn't believe in a project and wanted to kill it. Or in this case, you know, the the Pennsylvania Commodore people didn't like the, the West Coast Commodore people, which was the Amiga team. So they, they kind of tried, it felt like they tried to run them off, at least in my opinion. And it, it was just very weird to, to see that. So, yeah, I think these books are really great. It, if you get a chance to check them out, definitely do that, especially if you're into computers from the 80s. Or if you don't know anything and you just want to learn a little bit more about them. These are a great resource. So that is going to wrap up this episode. I know it it went pretty long. And I'm sorry about that. Uh, there's just a lot, of to- lot to talk about about these books. So yeah, I'm not sure what the, uh, the next topic is going to be. And I'm not really sure when the next episode is going to come out. I know I, I waited a, a very long time in between the sixth episode and this one. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry about that to to anyone that's listening to this out there. I'll try to get into more of a schedule. I'll at least give it a shot to get stuff out, like, once a month. Uh, We'll see what happens. Uh, Stuff's going to get a little crazy coming up, but uh, you can always check out the stuff that's uh, on my YouTube channel, uh, or you can read some more of the stuff that's on my website, both of which are just... Paul Workama. If, if you type those in, you should be able to find those. Uh, don't get me confused with the basketball player, though. He is not me, and I don't think he would want to be associated with me, to be perfectly honest. Anyway, guys, that is going to uh, wrap everything up. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will talk to you next time. Bye.